Hello, Warriors, and welcome to Warrior Life Podcast number 394. I am Buck Green, in for Jeff Anderson this week, and today I want to tell you a story that starts with a news article I saw in which a, a presumably high school kid had a classic, a true classic weapon that was confiscated from him. And that sent me down a memory hole that got me to thinking about the dumb things we all do that work against our own survival. Short answer, it's a miracle I lived through my college years. All that and more on today's episode of the Warrior Life Podcast. Are you ready? Then let's talk tactics. Tactical firearms training, urban survival, Close Quarters Combat. Welcome to the show that helps you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is the Warrior Life Podcast. All right, welcome back. This is Buck Green in for Jeff Anderson this week. I was looking through the news and I did an actual visual double take. The reason I did a double take is because I saw something very, very familiar to me. It was a knife called the Black Widow by United Cutlery. This is a cheap, silly, uh, uh, sort of a knockoff of the Gerber Mark I boot knife, you know, the standard double-edged boot dagger. The, the handle had like a, a, a molded spider relief pattern. The sheath had a little Black Widow symbol sewn onto the, the nylon sheath. It was, a, it was one of those nylon sheaths with a hard plastic insert and a metal boot belt clip um, and, you know, a snap to hold the whole thing in. Basically the worst possible setup for anything you could possibly carry. The Black Widow boot knife was also the unofficial boot knife of my college. When I went to college in the early 90s, I knew so many people who owned one and carried one. And you're thinking, well, what kind of weird gangland college did you go to? Actually, it was pretty normal, I thought. It was not that dangerous, I thought. But I knew a lot of people who carried that knife. So seeing that knife brought back memories. Also, the United Cutlery Black Widow is something that has not been available for many years. This is a collectible piece. As a matter of fact, it got me to thinking about what, what I would need to do to get my hands on one. And uh, it's it's this is a classic. This is like this kid carrying around, I don't know, a Vietnam-era tomahawk or something that was actually in Vietnam. It's that level of... Well, maybe I'm overstating the case a little bit, but my point is this is a classic knife and some high school kid was just carrying this around because it was a picture of a bunch of confiscated weapons and the news story was, I think it was in the New York Post, it was about how there's been an increase in weapons confiscated from kids going to school, which is obviously very bad, but I saw that picture and my first thought was, where did you get a hold of that, kid? How many how many generations of school uh, ne'er do wells of you know how many generations has this been passed down through? Like this was the knife I carried in high school illegally, my son, and now I want you to have it <laughs> and carry on the family tradition of being armed at school. <laughs> so it's all I could think of. So seeing that kind of brought back waves of nostalgia. Fortunately for me, nothing bad. But it reminded me of one of the scariest stories that I have from my college years. And honestly, it's a miracle that I survived because I could easily have ended up murdered along with several other people. And about the time a guy shows you the machete he's carrying in his pants, that's when you realize you've made some poor life decisions and it's time to reevaluate. I'm going to tell you that whole story. Uh, it, don't worry, it's not too long. So... When I talk about the dumb things we all do that work against our survival, I think these are universal to human nature and how our brains work. 
And chief among those is we do not listen to our instincts when we should. Um, this is this is normal. Uh, Sanford Strong in the book Strong on Defense talks about this. Gavin De Becker, famously in The Gift of Fear, talks about this. The idea is that we all have gut instincts that tell us when something is bad, something is wrong, something is dangerous to us. And we often override those. We don't listen to them. We try to tell ourselves, no, no, I'm being silly. I don't want to be rude. This isn't happening. Um, you know, the the uh, the there's any number of reasons why we just don't want to listen to those instincts because we find them inconvenient. Um, the, the worst example of that that I can think of, and I hate bringing this up because I don't like talking about this casually, but it is the most powerful example of listening to your instincts. During September 11th, 2001, the order went out to people in the towers to stay where they were, to, to shelter in place. Well, the people who listened to those instructions basically died when the towers collapsed. The people who listened to their instincts and said, I know I've been told to stay where I am, but I don't feel safe. I'm getting out of here. Those people had a much better chance of survival, and it's because they listened to their guts. Um, in college, uh, sort of a... a this is an awkward transition. This is a lot less serious than that. But in college, I didn't listen to my instincts, and I found myself in the company of several very dangerous people. Um, it is a very long story that I'm not going to bore you with the details of necessarily, but I got mixed up with a crowd of weirdos in college. And one of those weirdos was a guy who was convinced that there were tunnels underneath the college. If only someone could show him how to access the tunnels. What these tunnels were supposed to do for him, I don't know. What accomplishing that act was going to do, I, I'm unclear on. But he was obsessed with finding these tunnels. So he decided that, that someone he had talked to, who I thought were all members of a sketchy fraternity off campus, um, that was my uh, assumption. I'll get to that. Um, but anyway, he was talking to these guys who I was led to believe were, were members of a fraternity off campus. They claimed to know where the entrance to the tunnels were. So late one weekend night, which is the sort of nonsense that used to go on back in the pre-internet days when people had nothing to do but drink and get into weird, dangerous fun. Um, late one night on a weekend, I found myself in the company of these weirdos. And we started going to where the entrance to the tunnels was supposed to be. And we were sort of making this whole, like, line of people like something out of Lord of the Rings. You know, we're walking along as sort of a group. And as I'm walking towards the back of the group, because I am slow, I, I was born on Mosey, I've always been slow, I'm realizing that this seems wrong, and I haven't listened to my instincts, and now I'm in the company of these weirdos late at night in the dark. And I had that proven for me when one of the weirdos, who was a guy, I think his real name was Dave, and everyone called him Hi, H-I-G-H. That should probably be a clue. His lips were often purple. He was one of those guys who drank Robitussin. All of these are red flags. None of this is okay. So I'm a, you know, I'm a young 19, 20-year-old guy, and I'm walking along with these weirdos, and, and Hi sidles up to me as we're walking, and I don't know why he made this assumption. I don't know what he knew about me or thought he knew about me. He looked at me and he said, you'd be interested in this. And I remember thinking, what? And he pulled an entire machete out of his pants. He had a, a like a cardboard and duct tape sheath for the machete, shoved down one pant leg, and just produced an entire machete from inside his pants. I think I've told this story before in talking about concealing weaponry. Anyway, uh, he, he puts the machete back and proceeds to move farther up the line of people as we walk to what were supposed to be the entrance to the tunnels and was probably the site where we were all going to be mass murdered. Uh, 
by these weirdos who I thought were a fraternity. Um, so I moved further down the line of people uh, and got closer to one of my friends, one of the, cause I wasn't alone in this nonsense. It was dude who wanted to find the tunnels and several of his friends, one of whom was me. So I walked up near one of my other buddies and, and I'm like through clenched teeth. So hopefully no one will hear me. He's got a machete in his pants. He has got a machete in his pants. We should go. So eventually I was able to make myself known to my friends and, and, and alert them to the danger that was probably us being walked into the woods to be murdered by, I don't know, some kind of weird cult. And uh, I, I know this sounds weird. Every word of this is true. I swear this happened. Uh, it has bothered me for many years. So eventually we, I was able to get them to leave with me. We made up an excuse and we left. I almost think that guy who wanted to find the tunnels didn't leave and somehow he did not turn up beheaded and I'm not sure by what miracle that occurred. But anyway, we left and so I was not murdered. But that's that's not the end of the story. This brings me to number two of the things we do that work against our own survival. And this was how I got into that situation in the first place. We make assumptions. We naturally make assumptions because it's easier than waiting to get full information. We almost never have full information about any given situation. So we assume things to make our decision process easier. You know the old saying, when you make an assumption, you make an ass out of you and umption or something like that. I, the actual real saying is you make an ass out of you and me when you assume. And and that is true. You cannot afford to just guess. Making assumptions leads to making decisions based on what we think is true, not on what is true. In my case, I assumed these guys were part of a fraternity. They were not. Fraternities are common on college campuses. Apparently, deadly machete-wielding cults are less so, but still present. So, uh, I made a lot of assumptions about the people around me in college, that they were motivated by the same things I was, that we were all just students getting by, getting an education so that hopefully one day we could get better jobs. I learned later that I was surrounded by dangerous people. Um, the fact that so many people were carrying that Black Widow boot knife or other weapons was probably a red flag that I ignored even back then, so I wasn't listening to my instincts back then. But I, there have been numerous news stories that came out at that college since about rapes and assaults and other dangerous things. I had a friend in college who was walking across campus, encountered a drunk football player. That guy introduced himself, reached out to shake his hand, grabbed my friend's hand, and then used his other arm to just bash the dude's face in. So he was minding his own business and just got beaten at random by a football player. Uh, and at the time, I, I just attributed that to drunken shenanigans. It didn't occur to me that I was actually someplace really dangerous and that all of these things together uh, are a map of danger that you are, you know, any and I don't mean this was a particularly bad college or anything like that. It wasn't. It wasn't even a cheap one. It was an expensive one. Um, the, the thing about this is we assume that we are safe when, in fact, whenever you get several thousand people together in one spot, bad things are going to happen just by the mass of humanity. That's just how it works. Uh, locally to me, there's a high school that has as many students in it as my college did, you know, a couple of thousand. And they've had a number of security incidents that have made the news this year. And that's because you get that many people together and there are going to be some bad apples. No matter, this is a decent neighborhood, you know, a decent school district. And yet these things happen. Uh, so you cannot afford to assume 
that the people around you are just like you, you have to assume that whenever you get above a certain number of people, the probability, the statistical probability that there's danger is there. All right, number three, uh, this is something we all tend to jump ahead in our brains. This is not really, this is not like assumptions and this isn't listening to, not listening to our instincts. This is a different phenomenon. Have you ever been listening to someone explain something to you and your brain just says, oh, I know what this is. And you jump ahead and you stop listening. And when you get done, you have what you think you were told in your head, but it's not actually accurate because you stopped listening. You didn't get a clean read on what was going on. Um, that is how, that it, this is the process that leads us to make assumptions. When it was described to me who the weirdos were in college that we were going to go hunt for tunnels with, and everything about this story sounds wrong when I tell it out loud. I'm like, how did I ever, like, what was wrong with me? I remember as a child, uh, I watched uh, Galaxy Express 999, which is a famous science fiction anime film. As an adult, I saw that film, and it was so messed up. I remember thinking, who wasn't watching me as a child that I have seen this movie? And when I think of these college stories, it's the same emotional response. What was, why was I not being supervised? What led me to make these decisions? Because nothing about this sounds okay. So when it comes to the weirdos, I jumped ahead. I'm sure somebody explained to me who they really were and how guy who wanted to find the tunnels, how, how he came into contact with them. In my brain, I just jumped ahead. I'm like, oh, a group of guys, college town, they're a fraternity of some kind. It's no big deal. Well, no, they were clearly a bunch of dangerous weirdos, as evidenced by the guy with the machete. Um, I have talked before about other incidents that happened on the same college that put me on the path of becoming a survivalist and a prepper. And when I think about the fact that all of these stories happened in the same place, it starts to paint a very di different picture of what I think my college years were as, as, a, as a young man. Um, I told the story once in another podcast about a guy who dragged a bed frame down a hill, threw it up against a building, climbed it like a ladder, broke in through a window in the building because he was trying to bust into someone's room. And, you know, he ended up getting taken away by the cops later when they found him, and we never saw him again. There was another guy, uh, uh, we used to call him uh, Tom, you'll never take me alive, last name. I'm not going to say his last name here. Uh, and the reason we called him Tom, you'll never take me alive, last name, was because he apparently drank while on Prozac and then ended up in a crossbow standoff with police. We never saw him again after that either. <laughs> they took him away. <laughs> that was one of those houses just off campus. And when you find yourself in a standoff with the police where your weapon is a crossbow, you have made many, many poor decisions. But all of these, all of these things, the jumping off point is jumping ahead in our brains and not actually taking in full information, thinking we know. So this is the sort of the jumping off point for assumptions. It's sort of assumption adjacent. Number four is something that this is very important. It is something that Jeff has talked about many times, and that is that we think it can't happen to us. We think that bad things, that dangerous things won't happen to us because that's something that happens to other people. We can't conceive that we could be in danger. This cognitive dissonance, uh, Jeff did many podcast episodes about that, especially during the pandemic because of all the denial that was out there. People refused to believe that they were in danger. Um, cognitive dissonance is something that factors into that terrible story about the fires in California where the one fellow tried to get his, his uh, neighborhood friends to bug out with him and they waited too long. So this poor guy like was 
huddling in a in a small body of water while the fire passed over and everybody else was killed. Um, you know, horrible things that all start with believing that it can't happen to us. Well, I got into all these shenanigans in college because I thought, nothing bad can happen to me. This is college. It's not real. I remember spending those four years in kind of a haze of, of like, like a fantasy bubble where it's not the real world. You have the least amount of responsibility and the most amount of freedom you'll ever have in your life when you are a college student and somebody else, namely my parents, is paying most of the bills. So uh, it was... It was not real life for me. I didn't think of it that way. I didn't think I could really be in danger. It was only years later when I started putting all these stories together that I realized that I could have been in very serious trouble at any any one of a number of points. Um, and then after all of that, there was a period of time after my college years, and this brings me to number five, we rationalize after the fact. We do these dangerous things that work against our, our survival. By some miracle, they do not kill us. And then we come up with all these rationalizations for why, oh, well, that's because things really aren't as dangerous as you think they are. Or that's because I'm skilled enough that I knew to get out. So in my story about, you know, walking with the guys who probably were going to machete murder all of us, I, my instincts kicked in and I knew to get us out of there. Well, no, my instincts didn't kick in. If, uh, if Dave, uh, a.k.a. High had said to me, you'd be interested in this, pulled that machete out and whopped me in the neck with it, um, I would just be dead. <laughs> and my last thought would have been, what? <laughs> so rationalizing after the fact is something that, you know, it leads you not to make changes. If I do dumb things that work against my survival, if I do all these things, number one, I don't listen to my instincts. Number two, I make assumptions. Number three, I jump ahead in my brain, which is what helps me to make those assumptions. And number four, I believe that it can't happen to me. Uh, and if I get to number five and I'm rationalizing after the fact that all of this was okay, I don't make changes. I don't learn to make better decisions that more... Uh, that better facilitate my survival. I don't learn to not put myself in danger. Well, there came a time after all of this where I looked back and I examined. And then um, I was looking in the news and I saw some news stories that reminded me of all that. And there were a number of horrible things that happened uh, in and around that college town. There was one incident where a couple of young men pulled over to, to help what they thought were two young women in distress when they did, two men hiding in the bed of a pickup truck jumped up and attacked them and, like, beat them with bricks. One of those guys had brain damage, and I think he finally got better and was able to go back to school. I don't remember the story exactly. And then there were the news stories about the rapes that I read about. Um, fraternities were suspended at that college because there were too many hazing incidents, and there had been a famous incident where somebody died years before, and then I think there was again or something. I don't know. Just horrible things. I look back at all that and I realize that it's kind of a miracle that I survived given how bad I was at making decisions. And you know you're bad at making decisions the moment you find yourself at night with a crowd of strangers and one of them has a machete in his pants. I'd like to tell you that I have the definitive answer to what became of the weirdos. I know that Guy who was looking for the tunnels did survive and went on to lead a perfectly normal life, although he is still weird. Um, he lives somewhere in, in downstate New York area and seems to be okay. <laughs> As for me, well, I went on to be the guy that uh, guest hosts these podcasts and did a pretty good job of learning to be a survivalist after making a lot of dumb decisions in his early 20s. Some of the other friends I had, most of them survived too, and one or two that passed away along the way did so of natural causes. 
it is a, a source of nostalgia for me, but also it's very sobering to think about the choices we made back then that have led us to become the people we are today. I am now becoming an older guy and coming to terms with the fact that, you know, I can't get up out of a chair without making groaning noises and stuff like that. Uh, Jeff talks about, you know, making changes, seeing what you can do to make something just a little bit better right now. And that's inspirational to me. And when I think about the bad decisions I used to make versus the better decisions I'm making today, I realize that I can always learn to make even better decisions. And to start doing that, to start becoming a better prepper and survivalist, it starts with recognizing these dumb things that we all do that tend to work against our survival that are human nature. Uh, and if you can learn to avoid them, you can learn to start making better decisions to survive more effectively. All right, that's going to do it. I have been Buck Green in for Jeff Anderson. Until next week, prepare, train, and survive. You've been listening to the Warrior Life Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us spread the mission of self-reliance and self-protection when you rate us. And leave us a comment wherever you enjoy these podcasts. And don't forget to check out our posts and videos on our social media channels. You'll see a full directory when you visit our website at www.warriorlife.com. We'll see you next time. This has been the Warrior Life Podcast. Prepare. Train. Survive.